0: Welcome to episode 31 of Africa Past and Present, a podcast about African history, culture and politics, with your host Peter Leggi and, and moi, Peter Lim. Today we are Skyping with uh, Professor Robert Vinson, a uh, professor of history at the College of William & Mary in Virginia. Uh, This is part two of our series on the African diaspora. In the previous podcast, we spoke with Professor Robert Hill from UCLA. And in the next installment, the final of this three-part series, we'll be chatting with Professor Ned Alpers uh, of UCLA about the Indian Ocean African diaspora. But today, with Robert Vinson, we will be talking about Garveyism in Africa, uh, Professor Vincent received his PhD from Howard University and his research and teaching interests include South Africa as well as the African diaspora and African American history. He is currently completing not one but two major book projects. One is entitled The Americans Are Coming: The Dream of American Negro Liberation in Segregationist South Africa, it's forthcoming from the Ohio University Press, and Crossing the Water African Americans and South Africa, 1890 to 1965, a huge documentary history project co edited with Robert Edgar, a previous guest of the podcast, and David Anthony. This is also forthcoming with the Ohio University Press. And Professor Vincent has published many articles in very prestigious journals, including the Journal of African History and the Journal of Southern African Studies. Uh, Welcome, Robert.
1: Thank you, Peter. Peter Lemon, Peter Allegi, thank you very much for inviting me. I feel really hello, Bobby Hill, and to precede Ned Alpers, I'm really coming in between two real heavyweights. So thank you for inviting me.
0: Now, can you tell us how you came to study Garveyism and South African history?
1: That's a, a long story that I'll shorten considerably. It really, I'm a New Yorker by birth, but in my teenage years, I was living in Los Angeles, this is in the mid-1980s, and we were living in a part of L.A. that um, had gangs. Uh, you may have heard of the Crips and the Bloods, but also the crack cocaine epidemic. And what that meant was that the area that we were living in felt like an occupied zone. Uh, we had what we called ghetto birds, these police helicopters that would circle the neighborhoods and, and shine spotlights down um, on the neighborhood. And we also had this thing called batter rams, which uh, were like sort of armored tank vehicles that would literally bust through the front parts of dealers, and I had a number of, you know, unfortunate run-ins with with uh, police, and for no particular crime that I could figure out, except that I, I was young and black and male, perhaps. Um, and, and that that really, uh, you know, was a formative kind of experience. But at the very same time, when I would come home and, and turn on the TV, I would uh, see images of police beating uh, black South Africans. Right. This was, you know, obviously mid 1980s. And somewhere in my head, I was making these connections between uh, the police and and citizens, whites and blacks, whites in positions of power, blacks in in, uh, relative positions of of less power. And that was sort of swirling in my head. And at the same time, I was also interested in this fellow Marcus Garvey. Um, I started to read uh, Tony Martin's Race First, Bobby Hill's Philosophy and Opinions sort of in the late 80s, early 90s. And so all of this, South Africa, my experience as an African-American, Garveyism, they were all sort of coming together and I knew that I wanted to study um, not just the history of Africa but also the history of the, Af- of the African diaspora or African-American history. I didn't really have the language of an African diaspora at that time. I went to Howard University studied with Joseph Harris who was sort of the Dean of the African diaspora studies and Garveyism became a way for me uh, to, to do this work that was becoming known as African Diaspora Studies, to be able to connect the histories of Africa and the histories of, of diasporic blacks. Uh, but also, of course, Garvey had a message that resonated with me, this idea of black self-determination, uh, black people organizing economically and politically. Uh, that was a very powerful thing for me, coming from the particular background. So all those things, that sort of history, my life history, sort of attracted me to Garvey when I found out that his movement uh, had reached South Africa. I was ecstatic, and, you know, the rest is sort of history.
0: <laughs> so, Robert, how did Garvey's ideas cross the Atlantic, and who spread his message in Southern Africa?
1: Right. Garvey's ideas spread to South Africa uh, primarily through American sailors, uh, African-American sailors, West Indian sailors, who were stopping in, in African ports. In South Africa, it was Cape Town and Durban and Port Elizabeth and East London. And these were sailors who had shore leave for a few days, and they would, uh, they would uh, give local blacks copies of Garvey's newspaper, The Negro World, other UNIA literature, and also simply spread the word orally about what was happening in the black world, particularly coming, what was coming out of New York. Now, in Cape Town particularly, there were a group of, of former sailors, most of them from the West Indies, who had settled in Cape Town in the previous decades. And they had used their maritime skills to get jobs on the docks, primarily as stevedores. So literally, physically, they were the first to get the news from these sailors on shore leave about what was happening with Garvey and Garveyism. They would read those Negro worlds. They would take those Negro worlds and other literature. Some worked on railways and put those uh, that Garvey literature in parcels that would go to other parts of South Africa, particularly Kimberley. And blacks on the other end would open up those parcels and take out that literature and then spread the word that way. Some Negro worlds also made their way into, by, by simply the mail. Uh, and so we find in Johannesburg, in bookstores, uh, there were Negro worlds and, and other American newspapers, particularly African-American newspapers, readily for sale. So these were some of the ways that Garveyism spread in, in South Africa. Now, in Cape Town, the, uh, the sailing community that was based there, they were the ones who actually... Uh, created the UNIA chapters. and There were five in Cape Town uh, and in Johannesburg there was one, in Pretoria there were two, but Cape Town was really the sort of epicenter where there were UNIA chapters established. There were also UNIA organizers and it's unclear whether uh, the UNIA actually sent them out or whether they took it upon themselves. Blacks in South Africa already took it upon themselves to be organizers and spread the message uh, I suspect a little bit of both, I found evidence on both both levels, that there were official UNIA organizers uh, that came to South Africa, but also there were some blacks who were already in the country who were excited by the movement and decided to take on the official role of organizer and spread the word.
2: And so, how well did the Gavius movement fit with the black politics in South Africa in the short term and over the long term, Robert?
1: Right. I think in the short term, in the 1920s, you're absolutely right. You see Garveyism in, in trade, union, uh, trade union politics like the ICU. You see it in the ANC. Uh, I think it, in many ways, Garveyism sort of reinvigorates the ANC, those uh, movements particularly. I think this is one of the strengths of Garveyism, is that uh, you could enter into it uh, religiously, economically, politically, or a combination of, of all three, right. uh, culturally as well. It's right. very flexible. think that uh, Africans appropriated what they needed uh, uh, from Garveyism. So I think the strength of Garveyism was that it was diffuse, it was malleable, and that uh, whether you were in the ANC or the ICU or both, or the UNIA, uh, or any other type of organization, there was something in Garveyism that you could use to fit for your particular uh, circumstance.
0: So some of the aspects of Garveyism that that appealed to black south Africans uh, had to do with religion and specifically Christianity and you've written extensively about this uh, particular theme. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the the impact of Christianity how it fit in with uh, south Africans uh, embrace of Garveyism?
1: Sure. And it, it's really embedded in a in a in a question of time. I I'll, I'll, I'll stay say this. Uh, one of the ideological justifications for segregation that uh, white politicians educators had to say it was a question of time that the question of uh, that it had taken the British particularly the British uh, thousands of years to move from the sort of barbaric state what they call the barbaric state being on the sort of outposts of the Roman Empire to being um, at the pinnacle what they considered to be the pinnacle of of human life at this time, this time of the age of imperialism, the age of empire. And and they were very clear to Africans that, you know, they had to accept white trusteeship if they too hoped to make this journey from barbarism to civilization. And they argued that this could take hundreds, even thousands of years before Africans would be able to rule themselves. now part Christianity comes in because being Christian was one of the markers of so-called civilization, and particularly with missionaries, the idea was that uh, Africans, uh, their acceptance and ability to uh, incorporate so-called civili- civilization into their lives, could take hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And one of the re- one of the ways to sort of justify that biblically was to argue. That whites and particularly Afrikaners had this idea that they were a type of of chosen people, a type of elect. We know this history with Calvinism, um, And that in that blacks were the the damned, or uh, this idea of Ham, that blacks were descended from Ham, and there was the curse with Noah. We know that that history, but that uh, essentially blacks were going to be drawers of water and hewers of wood. That was the basic idea. So not only were blacks outside of the realm of civilization, so-called civilization, but also outside the realm of Christianity. Blacks were not a godly people. They could perhaps learn about Christianity and over time become Christian and thus fully civilized. So this idea of Christianity, this religious aspect, was deeply embedded into political aspects around segregation. So where Garveyism comes in, I think, is in this notion of completely recasting The place of black people in the history of Christianity, the future of Christianity, but also the future of civilization. And I think this is how. What Garvey was very clear about, and he wasn't the the originator of this idea, was that uh, first and foremost, blacks were godly people. That uh, the the biblical peoples uh, in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, these were peoples who walked on African ground. Uh, that Jesus himself had spent time um, in Africa, that these were people who were uh, uh, of darker skin, uh, of kinky hair, etc. And that blacks themselves were biblical characters, that God smiled on blacks just like God smiled on every other person on the earth. That was a piece. But now, how Garvey, South African Garveyites, connected American Negroes to the history of Christianity, I think you have to talk about slavery, American slavery, and the explanation that some African Americans and black South Africans had for slavery. Those 244 years of American slavery in the U.S., the Middle Passage, why did that happen? Why, how could God allow that to happen? Well, there was a sense that this was some type of providential design that God had um, allowed the Atlantic slave trade to happen, allow slavery in the Americas to happen, to expose blacks to, and this is where the argument gets a bit tricky, to uh, modern civilization. And that blacks in the Americas would take modern civilization back to their African brethren and sister on the African continent. So that in this rendering of providential design, there's an explanation for slavery that just like the biblical Israelites had been enslaved in pharaonic Egypt and then had spent the 40 years in the desert finally reaching the promised land. Uh, blacks in the Americas had also had their sojourn in slavery. Um, but now some of these American Negroes, particularly Garveyites were were projected to come back to the promised land of Africa to transmit those uh, skills that they had learned in the Americas and to, in the words of some, regenerate the African continent as a Christian modern civilization. So in this rendering then, blacks become center of a divinely ordained uh, narrative, historical narrative. So what this narrative does then is it displaces whites as the trustees and as the guides toward civilization and it places American Negroes as the guides toward a more perfect Christianity and a more modern and more holistic civilization. Uh, So that's the sort of connection with with Christianity. Uh, And now Garvey is looked at as a type of Moses figure, right? He's the person who is going to lead diasporic blacks back to the promised land. He is going to lift oppression. Uh, that Africans are suffering under, and he is going to be sort of the, the, the spark, the divinely ordained spark, to bring back the regeneration of the continent. So in this rendering of Christianity, Africans are front and center. Um, yes. And, and, and this, this to me reminds me of
2: the uh, resonance of Gaviism in the rural areas in South Africa, where mm-hmm. when we look in the archives, we see lots of meetings in the 20s uh, with lots of metaphors, religious, Garviist, um, early African nationalist metaphors all being mixed up in these speeches. And that prompts me to ask how different or how different was Garviism in the rural areas and what can we say perhaps about the um, appeal of Garveyism to different uh, categories of people? For instance, women, we were earlier talking, Robert, you and I about mini bowler, one of the early garviists in the Cape. What was this? Uh, was there a different resonance in rural areas and across genders and classes?
1: Yes, I think there was in the urban areas in Cape Town and Johannesburg. Uh, what you hear is 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 virtually all Garviers that I picked up on were were deeply religious, deeply Christian, and they spoke about uh, Garvey. Garveyites, Garveyism, and these sort of providential design terms, this idea that American Negroes could come back um, and restore Africa's ancient glories in a modern setting. Uh, and so Garvey is the, the the Moses that's going to start this. And when he gets in, when he is, is sent to jail, and Bobby Hill talked about this earlier, when he gets involved in in, in in incarceration, he is he is now a sort of persecuted Jesus figure. Now, I mean, so the language changes. He's a Moses before he goes to jail, but despite his troubles, he's not denounced by many Garveyites. In fact, he's looked at now. The parallels are now with Jesus, who's been crucified. He is that type of figure. So the spotlight is really about uh, now prophesying the. The end of white supremacy, the end of white rule now, because uh, uh, this sort of evil that has happened to Garvey is reflective of, of, of the abuses of white supremacy. So that's, that's pretty much where it stops, but it doesn't get into this idea of African-Americans coming in airplanes mm. uh, to immediately um, end white rule. That's what happens in the rural areas, and that happens really with this fellow, Wellington Butelezzi. Wellington Butelezzi is a fascinating figure because he's a Zulu man. Uh, And he's a man who appears to have designs to advance himself. He's a Christian. He goes uh, to Cape Town in 1923. He meets up with another Garveyite, James Ta'ele, and he's attempting to go to Oxford to get a medical degree. And he can't get a passport. The South African authorities tell him, well, look, you know, you don't have the necessary uh, prerequisites to go to Oxford. We have no record that Oxford has accepted you. Um, and, and Wellington is turned away. But what we see in that episode is Wellington is a person who is a striver. He wants to advance himself and prove himself. He wants to be a person of status. And eventually, Wellington Buthelezi, the Zulu man, uh, emerges in the former Trans Sky in 1925, as Dr. Butler Hansford Wellington, and he's claiming to be an African-American doctor, medical doctor from Chicago, who was sent by Garvey uh, to organize black South Africans into the UNIA. And he has this fantastic story. He's, he's arguing that, uh, that King George, the, uh, King George, uh, uh, during World War I, promised uh, America that if America sided with on the side of the English during the war, uh, that he would turn over South Africa to the Americans. And so he tells this story to audiences in in rural areas of, of the Trans Sky, very rural areas, remote areas. And and Wellington goes further to say that America is a black country. Now, this is the most powerful country on earth at this time, the United States. And the idea that America could be a black country, uh, gives some credence to the idea that Garvey uh, and American Negroes would come in airplanes and throw flaming balls of charcoal down on all those, black and white, who were not members of the UNIA. So Wellington is very clear. He has this idea of a prophecy, that there's a day of prophecy that's coming. He's preaching primarily out of the book of Revelation, and he's saying that these are the last days, and that if you want to be saved, you need to join the UNIA. So pay your two shillings and sixpence not to pay your taxes to the state who's oppressing you, but pay that as an entry fee to the UNIA because that's the path of delivery. So this guy, Wellington Butelezzi, as the Dr. Hansford Wellington uh, persona, this American Negro, he establishes these UNIA chapters in these areas, but he also starts uh, dozens upon dozens of UNIA churches and schools one of the people that went to uni school was walter susulu the great you know uh sure. leader uh whose, whose mother also taught at, at the uni school so this idea of, of wellington butelezi being one of the uni organizers but also the example of how uh, the salience of the idea of the american negro the power of the american negro as a potential liberator went to this extreme where you actually had South Africans pretending to be African Americans to legitimize themselves and their message. On, in terms of, of gender, the gender dynamic, what the Wellington movement does, I think, what, what, is, what is fascinating to me, is not only do you have female prophets like Noteta, uh, mm-hmm. there's a prophetess named uh, Josephina, who are attaching themselves to this idea of em- imminent American Negro liberation? They're using these ideas uh, to attract followers to as part of their own particular theology. But you also have a number of young women who seem to be escaping uh, these deeply patriarchal households, and to and they follow Wellington and choirs and as teachers in in these UNIA schools that Wellington starts as religious figures in UNIA churches under the Wellington umbrella. And it seems to me that part of the draw is not just the message of Garveyism as articulated by people like Wellington, but it's also the chance for autonomy to do more than simply work, um, you know, this poor agricultural ground to have to deal with the tax man, to have to have all the responsibilities of maintaining a household but being social minors and not having any real rights, uh, not only as Africans but also as women. And so there seems to be some evidence of particularly young women who decide to say no to that life that seems to have no real future, who seem to say no to arranged marriages and, and cast their lot with Wellington, who is moving around the trans sky, So in these dynamics, uh, Garveyism um, Mm -hmm. allows a space for particularly young women to have a type of autonomy that otherwise would be more difficult to have.
0: The the role of uh, Wellington Butalesi also calls attention to the importance of black South Africans in both uh, uh, interpreting Garveyism but also spreading it uh, locally. And uh, the the connection with the African-American Garveyites is particularly fascinating in one character that you've written extensively on, and that's James Taylor in The Western Cape. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about uh, Taylor?
1: Yeah, he's he's a fascinating figure. Uh he is from Basutoland. He is uh goes to Lovedale and and uh decides that he wants more education than is available to blacks in South Africa at that time. He uh is uh, ends up at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania and he is one of we estimate a few hundred uh Blacks who are educated in American and English universities between roughly 1895 and 1925. There's a real educational pipeline that's opened. And uh, Taile is in Lincoln, at Lincoln in 1909. He gets two degrees from Lincoln, uh, two Bachelor of Arts degrees, and teaches in a Philadelphia high school after he gets his last degree in, in, in Lincoln. This is 1920, 1920. And uh, he's back in South Africa in 1922. Now, it appears to me, I don't have the smoking gun, but it it appears to me uh, that that Taile, he appears at a Cape Town UNIA meeting three weeks after he returns to Cape Town, to South Africa. He's been gone for 13 years. I've been looking for evidence of Taile intersecting with the Garvey movement in the United States. I have not been able to find it. But what I that does seem to be clear is that uh, Tylee seemed to be very, very familiar with the ideas of Garveyism when he announces himself at this Cape Town UNIA meeting, again, only three weeks after he returned. Uh, so now Taile goes on to involve himself with the UNIA. He becomes the editor of the ICU uh, Newspaper Workers' Herald when it was still based in Cape Town. And after the ICU moves its headquarters to Johannesburg, uh, Taile really begins an ANC chapter in Cape Town and becomes the president of that chapter. He starts another uh, newspaper called The African World. And Garvey and the Negro World clearly articulate that this is like a sister newspaper to the Negro world. It is so suffused with Garveyism and the idea of American Negroes being a sort of vanguard for the race. Uh, and this this uh, African world, we have copies of it, goes on for about nine to ten months. And Tahile is also the Minister of Education in the ANC. He's very much engaged with James Herzog's Native Bills. Very interesting with Ta'ile. uh He does a couple of things uh, to push the point of black modernity. One thing that he does is that he makes the argument that he, Taile, with two degrees, 12 years of American education, um, is, has attained the heights of modernity, and of civilization, and that if he could do this in one lifetime, then any black person could do it. And this idea of modernity, that modernity could be achieved in one lifetime, that the idea that Africans could do this and thus are capable of ruling themselves that really pointed to the lie of white supremacy, the idea that it would take Africans thousands of years to modernize themselves to be capable of of ruling themselves. So Tylee looked at himself as the personification of of black modernity, the ability of blacks to rule themselves in their own affairs, and the lie of white supremacy. Uh, And so Tylee would take that question uh two audiences both white and black to say look I am a living example of what Africans can do
2: right yes C- right. clearly so, he was a fascinating and complex character and I remember a a really good uh, panel at the African Studies Association a f- few years ago that you were involved with about him and I think there was some members of the family present um right, right. but uh... clearly the Gavi movement was very important across southern but also west and central Africa but, well, it's it's nearly my birthday, so I wanted to put the cat among the historiographical pigeons. And I recall that the American-born historian of South Africa, Norman Etherington, has criticised what he would uh, characterise as American-centric interpretations of South African history. And so isn't there a danger that we might be diminishing African agency uh, in South Africa by emphasising external influences, and that could be applied to mission history as well but so really wasn't there an idea of pan-africanism or self-determination before Garvey and wasn't Garvey himself inspired by earlier fighters for liberation how do how do these questions all stack up
1: sure i think i think that the the, the point of my work is to show how africans appropriated all types of ideologies, some homegrown, some uh, coming from across the seas, to find ways to sustain themselves politically, economically, religiously, uh, culturally. Right. Uh, and the, the point is to show how they appropriated these different ideas, blended them together
2: mm-hmm. yes. to
1: maximize their effectiveness. So in that dynamic then, uh, what appears is that Africans are the African are, are the active agents garveyism, for instance, if we take that as an example as a transnational ideology that 's sort of the, the passive uh, dynamic of it that 's the piece that 's going to be shaped and molded and appropriated and transformed in ways that Garvey himself may not even have recognized or even known about. And and to me, that's the story. That's the fascinating story of how blacks in South Africa do that, do that particular maneuver. Now, I, I do think that there is always a danger uh, when we think about the preeminent position of America in the world, the disproportionate um, um, access to resources that American-based scholars have vis-a-vis African-based scholars, uh, the sheer amount of scholarly production that comes out of um, the American academy, certainly there's a danger there uh, of sort of um, having too much weight on the American angle. I think that's, that's clear. But I also think, though, that the best of this kind of work opens up the some occasionally parochial nature of South African studies. Yes, uh, the sort of naval gazing that has happened historically when we think about South Africa. I think this kind of work, this transnational work, sort of opens it up, um, and I think if if we calibrate it uh, in proper ways, that it could be a very useful way to look at South African history. That's my take on it. Now, the the, fir- the second part of your question, of course, much of this transnational activity doesn't start with Garvey. As a matter of fact. Uh, much of this, uh, these Pan-African ideas were, were uh, articulated by Africans long before Garvey, uh, and that's one of the reasons why Garvey isn't fell on such fertile ground, because many of these ideas were already familiar. Many of these ideas had already been articulated and used, and, and that's the reason why I think Garvey was so effective. These were familiar ideas. Uh, coming from a place that was increasingly familiar, America and American Negroes. Um, and when I say American Negroes, that means all black peoples from the Americas, that included West Indians. Yeah. So I, I think that, that helped Garvey, uh, that there was already fertile ground, that Africans were already grappling with these ideas and finding ways to maximize their effectiveness.
0: Well, I I think this is really quite a brilliant way uh, that you've deepened our understanding of not just Garveyism, but uh, also how Garveyism uh, improves our understanding of South African history and the history of Pan-Africanism. This is really a a terrific uh, way to continue this series. And we'd like to thank you, Robert, for sharing your time and your insights uh, with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Peter Legge and Peter Lim, and thank you for your listeners. This is a wonderful, wonderful program. I'm so just happy to be a part of it.
0: Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington, technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D dot A-O-D-L dot Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu